Good morning, Grace Point Church. First off, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Um, exciting day for you all. Uh, I'm super excited to talk to my dad later this afternoon. My parents are in Wisconsin, so hi to dad from afar. They're probably watching right now, but happy Father's Day to you all. Um, for those of you who are new here, my name is Andrew. I serve on staff here at Grace Point Church as the pastoral assistant. But if you are not new to Grace Point Church and you already know me, you might be thinking that there's something rather peculiar about this morning. You see, we just read God's Word, and this morning in 1 Peter, um, already kind of waiting to see the tension a little bit because it's somewhat of a marriage text that we're going through, but in addition to that, I already know the word submission has got some blood pressures up some fight-or-flight responses kicking in. So, But to further the intrigue of this morning um, is the quite comical circumstances that some of you may already be privy to. You see, there are nine men here at Grace Point Church that are vetted and qualified to preach here. We have Pastor Ty, Pastor Tim, Pastor Nick, Pastor Terrence, Pastor Freddie, Brandon Canal Coburn, Matt Butler, Mo Hader, and myself. Now, for those of you who have been a part of Grace Point Church for any time at all, you would be fully aware that all of those men have wonderful, amazing, fantastic wives. Meaning, in theory, they have a fountain's worth of experience and knowledge <laughs> regarding marriage. And then there is me, the 28-year-old single guy. Yep. Don't know how, how I got myself into this one, how that happened. Not to mention, Pastor Ty, Pastor Tim, Pastor Terrence, and Pastor Nick are all not here this morning. <laughs> I'm starting to think I was set up for some sort of cruel joke. Or maybe they just gave me this text because when I go home, I'm not going to get in trouble with the missus or anything after, <laughs> after what I say. <laughs> so you have me, the 28-year-old single guy, preaching the text this morning. And who knows, maybe after we're done here, some of you will be like, well, that makes sense why he's still single. <laughs> but I want to assure you, though, I spent significant, significant time prepping for the message this Sunday morning. I mean, I watched a ton of movies like The Notebook. A Walk to Remember, Crazy Stupid Love. I even watched The Incredibles, and man, there's some great family dysfunction that you can learn some things in that one. Just kidding, but in all seriousness, though, I do take the responsibility in this task very seriously, and my hope and prayer this morning is that Christ will truly, truly be magnified. This wouldn't come off as just my thoughts or words or opinions of marriage, but more so the appropriate communication of God's word and what he desires for his creation, and specifically Christ followers. With that, I know texts like this, much like Brandon's text last week, can be a challenge, especially in the cultural climate we find ourselves in today. So please, I ask simply, just, just hear the word this morning. Hear the word and come with a posture, not of uh, hostility or skepticism, but of humility and, and just may the Lord draw you near to the likeness of the Savior in Jesus Christ. Amen. With that, let us pray together this morning before we start. Dear Lord, I pray that it is you that speaks to each of us this morning. Calm our minds, our hearts, and our souls. 
Make us quiet so we may hear the slightest whisper of your voice. Open our eyes to see a clearer picture of the glorious gospel. Father, we love you, we lean on you, and we trust in your promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So in preparation for this text, um, I have to be quite honest with you, there was some, some nervousness a little bit, some, some angst um, that came along with it, but also there was some excitement, ironically enough, for me, because you see, marriage has become something that I have come to marvel at. Perhaps it's just because the, the current circumstances in my life, it, it eludes me in my current station, but it truly is this beautiful wonder to me. And maybe it's the naivety that still exists for me being single, but still, I would think that perhaps even the Bible would lend a helping hand in the beauty and glory that is hidden within the mystery of marriage. Perhaps you find yourself, though, in a season of singleness. Perhaps you have no intentions of getting married, which is fine. Perhaps you've been hurt in previous relationships. Um, perhaps divorced or per perhaps your marriage is going through a rough patch right now. And to even begin talking about gospel transformed marriage brings maybe some, some conviction, some weight, some tension, maybe some guilt. I've had someone walk out as one of the pastors was preaching on marriage here and their words to me was, I'm not married, I don't ever plan on being married, so this message doesn't pertain to me. Please hear me this morning. No matter what season you are in or where you are, God's word has something for you. If we are not careful and we just approach God's word with what pertains to me, we will miss out on so many riches of his glory, and perhaps we will miss out on a lot of opportunities to be the church and to sharpen our brothers and sisters in Christ with the truth and grace of his glorious revelation. But one thing I've come to realize this week is I have no illusions um, that if there are those still learning and growing in their marriage for 30, 40, 50 years, there is no way I am going to be able to summarize everything about the marital union in 30 to 40 minutes. So, nor is that what this text is doing. You see, much like last week and weeks prior, Pastor Tim stated it, um, Matt stated it, Brandon stated it, this is a letter, and it needs to be seen as this whole theological case that Peter is making about the new identity in Christ, and how the gospel transforms us to express our union to the Father through Jesus in ways that are revised from the cultural norms. We have to continually remind ourselves that 1 Peter is a narrative of a whole new gospel identity. So the text this morning is and isn't about marriage all at the same time. This passage is not meant to be a prescriptive interpretation in a vacuum, which is how it has been used, unfortunately. We have to take an in-depth look at Peter making the case for gospel living in an anti-gospel culture. Secondly, we have to remind ourselves that First Peter is a letter. And to understand what it means that it is a letter is crucial when interpreting texts that impact how we practice our theology. Let me put it this way. Have any of you written a letter before? Raise your hand. Someone. Good. I, it's, it's not common nowadays. I mean, email, sure. But Now, when you write a letter, there are parts of a letter that only make sense if you have read everything leading up to that part as a whole. Meaning, if I write a letter to my brother, 
My brother Brody just starts smack dab in the middle of the letter, and he sees a sentence like, I missed the appointment I had with my doctor. And if he stops and goes, hmm, I wonder what Andrew meant by he missed the appointment he had with his doctor. If he does that, there are so many questions that perhaps would have been answered and more accurately understood if he would have read everything prior to the sentence that he started with. My point in all of this is that in handling this text today, we have a responsibility to understand what Peter is talking about and to whom in order for us to get an appropriate application. Otherwise, we will take this sentence and see how much damage it can cause when we choose to express it in inappropriate fashions. Because that is what has happened historically in the culture, and more specifically, it has happened in church culture. We are obligated to shed light on the fact that a text like this has caused much tension in our day, not because of cultural feminism. This is not going to be a feminism bashing morning. That would be completely inappropriate to the text. I'm actually pointing to the fact that our, our response to it is because of how this has been handled in the church, in the church culture specifically. The establishment that Jesus built with his blood should be holding the purest model of marriage, but honestly, in a lot of ways, we've tarnished it by the neglect and even intentional disregard for abuse that has taken place with these verses as its backbone. Scott McKnight has a quote that further validates this point. I'm attempting to make it here. You'll see it on the screen. It says, so with this passage, we must be aware of the problem of hearing a passage today in a way that was never intended. We must admit that great abuses have taken place and have led many to see in this passage some kind of moral subjugation of women by men. Many women do not hear this text in any other way than how it has been practiced by abusive men. Perhaps this intro is redundant, but I believe it is absolutely crucial to address the very real wounds and tensions that exist so that we can truly begin listening and hearing God's word the way it was intended to be listened to. Because in all of that, there is something beautiful. There is this shimmer. There is a flicker of the glorious kingdom of Jesus when lived out in the freeing power of the Spirit that our God has given this glorious and beautiful purpose to the marital relationship between man and woman. When it's lived in a non-believing culture, it stokes the fires of gospel change and it even embodies evangelical witness. So with that, I have two main points for this text that I hope will be revealed this morning. Number one, Peter is answering a question. He is answering the question, what do I do if? Has anybody seen the movie uh, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen? Yeah? Great. Uh, if you've seen the movie The Santa Claus, do, do you remember Scott Calvin, his character? There's, there's a point in the movie where he accepts that he's Santa Claus. And it's Christmas Eve, and he's getting ready to deliver the presents and the gifts. The elves are helping him out and getting them all prepared. They're showing him all these gadgets on his sleigh and all these cool things about his suit. But there's one question he keeps asking everyone, and nobody seems to answer him. Does anybody know what the question is? What do I do if I fall off the roof? And no one will answer this question for him. Peter's letter over the last few weeks, if we've been paying close attention, is Peter's argument and declaration, what do I do if? He is answering questions. We have examples. What do I do if I am a Christian and we no longer have social relevance? What do I do if I'm a Christian 
and we don't have a temple or a people that we belong to? What do I do if I'm a Christian and the governing authorities are not? What do I do if I'm a Christian slave and my master is not? Peter is answering these questions to who we believe are not only Gentiles and pagans, but specifically a vast majority probably were Hellenistic Jews, which were the Jewish people that would have blended Greco-Roman culture with Jewish tradition. So Peter is giving them a guide in relation to the culture around them in addition to their new relationship that they have with the risen Jesus Christ. And today, Peter is answering this question specifically. What do I do if I am a Christian and my spouse is not, specifically in the context of a believing wife and an unbelieving husband? Peter's answer sits before us in the text that we are studying this morning. So here at Grace Point Church, please be ready to open your Bibles. We lead, teach, and preach from our Bibles. We have free ones up at the front in Spanish and in English, so please, those are free to you. Or you can download the Bible app and go to the YouVersion app to follow along in the study notes. Sound good? Awesome. So with that, we're going to jump into Peter. Chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Peter is bringing attention from the first verse to the points that I mentioned earlier, that the entire argument has been talked about in this letter so far. He does this by stating the word, likewise. He states the word likewise in the beginning of the text. This is coming after he just talked about submission Christians should have in authority to uh, governing authorities and Christian slaves to their masters. Peter is saying, in keeping with the same point and theme that I have already been stressing, this is my response. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Much like when addressing the controversy of slavery, Peter realizes that this is not the most ideal circumstances or culture. When he is, what he is getting to is how Christians are supposed to be living out the ways of the risen Christ in spite of the culture that they live in. Peter is addressing a Christian wife of a non-Christian husband. You see, in Greco-Roman culture, this was incre incredibly uncommon. This was actually something that would have drawn a lot of scrutiny, a lot of social attention, because back in this time, the common practice was when a marriage took place, the wife would adopt the husband's culture, everything about it. A woman would adopt and worship his God that he worshiped. The man's friends and social standing would become her friends and social standing. But now, if a wife is not does not only have her own God being Christ Jesus, but this also meant now that she had a new social influence and a new social circle. A Christian wife would have had fellowship with other Christians that probably were not her husband's friends. 
If a woman did not believe in the same God as her husband, this would have led to a significant public scrutiny and loss of reputation in the culture, specifically for the husband, because this actually violated Greco-Roman ideals of uh, keeping an orderly home. Men actually, if this did happen, were not only embarrassed and scrutinized, but also it actually may have gotten him disqualified from certain Greco-Roman cultural honors and offices. So it is imperative to learn that what Peter is talking about within the Christian expression that we actually specifically see through the Gospels of Jesus is that faith in Christ has never been motivated to incite social rebellion or anarchy. Jesus did not come to rebel against the Roman Empire and build an earthly kingdom. Matt, a couple of weeks ago, preached on the relationship Christians have with governing authority in that we are supposed to submit as long as we are not being called to directly disobey God. Because the common ideal of the Christian witness has been that it primarily incites one of two things. Most of the time, this is the outcome of the Christian witness. Number one, Win those over to Christ by the power of the living and active Holy Spirit. Number two, unbelievers will reject it and have hardened hearts, which may lead to suffering and oppression of Christians. We see that in the next part of this verse. The next part of verse one, Peter is making the point where he he says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That even if some do not obey the word language, is referring to that even if your husband does not follow Jesus, i.e. the word, we saw that in the Gospels, Jesus reveals himself as the word, they may be won over. But what Peter is also revealing here is that Greco-Roman culture valued the social image of an orderly home. And what they would have seen this as then that the woman was committing an act of rebellion, not only to the husband, but to the culture. But potentially, though, the culture, culture would see what the next verse calls respectful and pure conduct. They would see that Jesus, this faith is not leading a life to maliciously rebel against her husband, but Christ is actually inspiring her to love, to care, to honor and respect her husband, which was something that was valued by the culture that was skeptic of Christianity in the first place. They would have seen it as a religious threat. But she's embodying the very values that they cared about. This specifically hits home for me because this is my family dynamic a little bit. My dad comes from a Navy family with more traditional sensibilities. My mom has a wild testimony that I'm not going to get into here this morning. But in short, she had appropriate reason to distrust male authority figures from past traumas in her life. When my mom met the man that would be my dad and raise me, she was already a single mom with two boys and had become accustomed to being very independent and doing things her way. So as you can tell, that led to challenges when you have two very imperfect people, although I'm kind of biased, I think they're pretty awesome, But you take two sinners from two different family structures, they are going to butt heads in how they think that the household should be run. When my mom got saved, my dad wanted no part in it. He said, I wanted nothing to do with religion, is what he likes to say when he reflects on his heart posture back then. 
But to make a long story short, my dad saw something happen. He saw a change in my mom's behavior. A shift was taking place, and please don't hear this as me saying my mom lost any zeal or spunk or outgoing personality. Anyone who has met my mom would agree in a minute that my mom can hold her own. She, she can hold her own. Her energy is contagious. We love her personality. Just ask my brother and sister. But my mom's heart posture changed toward my dad. There was a gentleness, a respect and a loving compliance that he had never experienced from her before. And one day, after many gracious prompts and invitations, he agreed to go to church with her. And thanks be to God, his soul was captured by the glory of Jesus. Amen. So with that idea of the conduct, of the behavior, we go into verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is communicating this idea that a wife's behavior and conduct that is of Christ is something that actually will be admired and valued by her husband. Now, a couple of clarifying statements needed um, on these two verses before we continue. First statement. This passage is not teaching that women um, are supposed to submit to all men. That is not what this passage is teaching. Peter is instructing that she submit to her husband's wishes to a certain extent that does not lead to direct disobedience to Christ. The passage itself communicates that they may be won over to Christ. In reality, Peter is also very aware that that does not always happen. That should not be then our grading scale if a wife is being submissive or not. And when a husband is in violation of his responsibilities as a husband, specifically in the context of this passage, which we'll end up talking about in regard to committing physical, emotional, and verbal abuse, we as the church should be incredibly, incredibly aware and give no excuse for such behavior to take place to one of our sisters in Christ and simply respond with, well, you need to submit to your husband. Thirdly, this passage should not be used as ammunition to marry an unbeliever if you are a Christian. Scripture teaches us to be joined with one of equal yoke that is a Christ follower. This is taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Continuing, though, to verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I don't know about you, but specifically for myself, something that has really helped me when it comes to my study and labor of God's word is looking up the definitions to a lot of the words and then writing those definitions in a way that's cohesive with the passage. So this word adorning, I've heard it before, but honestly, if you're like me, I can use words I've heard before in like proper sentence structure, context and whatnot without actually having any idea what they mean. I'm just being honest. But Looking at this definition here, this is what adorning means. It means to make more beautiful or attractive. Reading this, at least for me, kind of then deepens my ability to relate to the text. What Peter is saying is, do not let the way you make yourself more beautiful or attractive be solely focused on the external, the outward appearance, which is the braiding of hair, 
the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let the way you make yourself more beautiful and attractive be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I think this verse specifically loses some of its luster in the modern-day culture, because specifically, um, if we're honest about it, the degree that we have of obvious social cues through our appearance, um, correlating with our wealth and status, they don't exist in the same capacity today. Men and women today, if we're honest, are both guilty of the allure of expensive accessories, jewelry, clothing, and even makeup or cosmetics. I mean, I bought a new shirt for this today, so that's, that's, that's all I'm saying. But not to mention the culture, with a culture that has gotten accustomed to indebting ourselves with credit cards and paying things off over payment periods, our financial standing has more of a disguise now and an appearance to look the same way as those around us in our social circles. But in this time period, specifically, the attention Peter is bringing here is the fact that everything he just mentioned would have been of great worth to this society. They would have seen this and valued it. So this was important. This actually not only ended up aligning with Old Testament and Jewish teaching, we see specific teachings like this in Proverbs, specifically chapter 31, verse 30, as well as other areas. But what Peter is teaching actually would have aligned with what the Greek philosophers were teaching at that time, which would have been a, a green flag to them. They would have said, yes, we value that the virtue and the embodiment is important rather than the outward things. So they were, it was common theme that women's beauty was captured within their virtue, within that culture and society. In this time and culture, women that were heavily enveloped in external adornments and accessories such as these were seen as trying to be either seductive, the, the application of cosmetics and makeup would have been seen as they were trying to be deceitful or deceptive or trying to hide something, specifically because prostitution in this time was rampant throughout the area. So when women displayed all these things, the culture had a skepticism of their intentions and agendas, which leads to a powerful take on the instruction by Peter then. Look at this quote by Karen Jobes. Peter's instructions against outward adornment make sense if a Christian wife is attending Christian worship outside her home, and especially if doing so without her husband. Society would perceive that act alone as questionable. By leaving her home unadorned, her intent to attend worship and not a tryst would presumably be all the more clear. If we see what Peter is doing here, it is actually keeping in line with the theme from the entire time with Christian behavior and the very thing that it does when he said in chapter 2, verse 15, you'll see it on the screen, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The behavior of a Christian in its glory reveals Christ to make those who accuse us of evil and makes them look foolish when they see that we're actually doing good. But Peter continues to give us something quite profound in verse 4. He says, The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do we see the glorious comparison in that language that Peter is using right now? This verse is not instructing wives or women, for that matter, to be quiet. Rather, Peter is making a glorious, glorious connection to the very Savior 
in which we all seek to express through our gospel-transformed hearts. Look at Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who said that? Who's speaking here? Jesus. That gentle and quiet spirit, that language has the same connection to Jesus. When he calls himself gentle and lowly, that is the same language in this culture. That is an honorable and noble comparison to be drawn with our king and our God. Because the father is pleased with his son in the same manner he will be pleased with you. Peter continues this point in verse 5 and 6. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This partially keys into the understanding of Peter's audience, with a combination of the Hellenistic Jews as well as Greeks being the makeup of the Christians in this area. Peter is showing that what he is teaching in this letter is nothing new, but it is actually what has been done all the way back to the Old Testament with God's covenant with Abraham. So the Jewish audience would have been able to recognize the role model in Sarah, but also it would have been an indication to the non-Jewish audience that they are now a part of the same people because we are all united in perfect union with Christ. Furthermore, this would have been an example that while Sarah was an honorable wife, she called Abraham Lord with a lowercase l, signifying her submission to his leadership. But we can use our Bibles as a guide to see that Abraham submits to his wife's wishes multiple times throughout the book of Genesis. You can see it in Genesis 16, 18, and 21. And for time's sake, I'm not going to go through all of them, but look at the screens. Genesis 21, verses 8 to 13. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac, sh- sh- for though, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Look at that language. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. In the same manner that we use God's word as our guide for submission to authority, to culture, and to the people around us, we can use it to the same degree to rightfully discern the mutual submission between husband and wife. Verse 7. Now, before we jump into verse 7, there is a question that is a common question today that I think needs to be answered about this text. The question is, why does it seem like Peter picks on women in this passage for six verses and then only gives men one verse? And that question is a product of the shift in our cultural thinking. Peter is doing this in the same posture as he did when Brandon preached on the slavery text from last week. This was completely countercultural at this time. Peter's writings are revelatory because he is addressing slaves and women 
in a culture that would not have acknowledged them at all. All philosophy, all religion, all so, anything of social significance or importance at this time would have only been addressed to the masters of slaves or the men of the household. Peter is validating in this passage that women are seen by God and bearers of his image. With that, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so they are heirs with you, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's that word again. Likewise which leads us to draw a couple of conclusions. Peter, again, is saying, similar to what I have already been saying to you, similar to the point I've been trying to make this entire time, but he's flipping the dynamic a little bit. We can understand this to be Peter now addressing households where the husband is a believer in Jesus, but the wife is not. In the same breath, though, we can look at it in the same way verse 2 talks about potentially winning them over to Christ. But this verse is in direct relation to cultural customs. That line, showing honor to women as the weaker vessel, you see in Greco-Roman culture, Greek philosophy was that women were not just weaker in biological comparison of strength, but they actually taught in Greek philosophy that God divinely intended for women to be created as as inferior to men in every single capacity meaning they were teaching that God made women inferior physically, emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually, which obviously is not true. I mean, I've got to be honest, I've met some of your husbands. Ladies, we're thankful for you. Because I'm going to be honest, sometimes I don't even know what we're thinking. But Seriously, so what Peter is addressing here is that, yes, in most cases, biologically, the male is physically stronger. But what he is really getting at here is two things in relation to the culture. Number one, women did not have the same advantages socially as men. Number two, men, do not impose your physical superiority over your wives. In this culture, men had the majority of rights and advantages, so women were truly at man's mercy, and society didn't see anything wrong with that. Women needed to be a part of a male-led family structure in order to survive. And if they weren't a part of a male-led family structure, a lot of them had to resort to prostitution just to stay alive. Now, this doesn't model our, cult- our culture today at all. Women are more than capable in society to survive thrive, and succeed on their own. Thanks be to God. But the lesson should be we should never use our advantages against others, specifically in this context of marriage. And to the second point, physical abuse at this time was widely accepted within the culture. Men would often impose physical abuse, and the culture at hand did not punish it or reprimand it. In most cases, the culture viewed it, in Greco-Roman culture, that she was probably not being a virtuous wife, and that is what led to the abuse. Which raises the question that needs to be addressed, not only for the cultural time we're talking about, but for our current church context. Should a wife submit to a husband within an abusive relationship? I think this quote by Karen Jobes gives us light on this very serious question. For wives to be subject to their own husbands in proximity to the discussion of Jesus 
as the model for Christian suffering immediately raises the question of whether women should stay in marriages where there is physical abuse. There is nothing in this passage of Scripture that would either sanction the abuse of wives or suggest that women should continue to submit themselves to that kind of treatment. The nature of the suffering that Peter is addressing is primarily verbal abuse and loss of social standing. Church, there will always be suffering and hardship that comes with pursuing a life of Christ. But in that same pursuit, let us never use a verse to such a degree that it disregards the ultimate command of Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the same attitude that Brandon so beautifully illustrated last week in regard to the treatment of slaves in Middle East past, in our cultural and country's past, and the global present, We should never be so blind to follow instruction that it ignores the love, the care, and the divine justice that God calls us to as a people when we are aware of such deplorable acts to another human being and another image of God. Because look at what Peter says in verse 7. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This statement by Peter in in a culture that barely acknowledged the human dignity of a woman was monumental. Peter is making the declaration that the risen Christ, the one who reigns over all things, has saved your wife and granted her the same eternal life that you now have. You are both beautiful and equal recipients of the grace of God that has been given the work of the cross. And that is and always will be the primary motivator in living in relationship with one another to express the very love that you have experienced in Jesus. I hope you've enjoyed the history lesson a little bit this morning. I used to fall asleep in my high school history class all the time, so I won't take it too too offensively if you did. But I just have one final point here. Because we said Peter is answering the question, what do I do if I'm a Christian and this specific thing is happening? But now the question is for us. What do we do with this? I told you that Peter is not specifically making an argument about marriage, but rather the Christian expression that models Jesus in relation to culture and authority. What Peter is expressing practically is what Paul expressed theologically in Ephesians 5. If you notice, the two letters have some overlap here. For time's sake, I'm going to kind of whip through this, but Ephesians 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Church, please read that and hear that this morning. While there is undoubtedly 
an instruction of reverent submission for a wife to her husband and God's good design, there is an even greater expression that we submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Look at this quote by Pastor Alistair Begg when it comes to this idea. How did Christ love the church? Submissively. There is no greater act of submission than for Christ to come from heaven to earth and then submit himself even to death on a cross. So the question is, are we dying for our spouses? Christ set down what he wanted in submission to what his father wanted. Don't you remember? In the garden, he pleaded with his father to remove the cup, but he still laid his life down willingly. Look at what Scott McKnight recites from an evangelical scholar that he had spoken with. I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits. And when I am unworthy of it, she does not. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy. Submission does not become the issue when you are standing across another with Christ being the crown jewel of their desires. It goes from this closed fist of confrontation to this open hand of relationship. Rather than looking at you as my combative counterpart, I now look at you as my equal, my friend, and my love. Looking at Paul's reminder of in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I know this might sound cheesy or or naive a little bit, and I think that's the point. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, I can promise it's probably going to be quite messy. But that is one of the greatest gifts I have learned from my parents, watching them get through the mess with Jesus being the foundation. Because only Christ could bring sinners together to bring something that Paul refers to as the mystery that marriage is, is that it resembles Christ and the church. There is this beautiful awe and wonder when it comes to the marital, marital relationship of Jesus. So let us strive to live so closely to the likeness of Jesus, the risen Christ, that the very culture around us stops in awe and wants to know how are we capable of such truth, of such love, such grace and forgiveness. Let us live in such a way that right in our very homes, our marriages can be gospel witness to our children, our family members, our friends, and maybe even to the neighbors that need to know Jesus that are living right across the street. Let us pray.
Lord, I pray that your son was exalted and magnified this morning. I pray that your word spoke to us to want to desire living and submitting to your authority, not our own. I pray, Lord, that we are just humbled before you. Remind us over and over the glory of your gospel, that Jesus did not count it a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to die for us. Lord, we love you and we pray for our marriages, our families, our households. We pray that the church would handle this delicately, passionately, and in accordance with your will and your word. We love you in the precious and holy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.